Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. It's 1969. The movie. The Wild Bunch. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films we watch today. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. But before we get into that, we're going to go back in time a little bit and talk about uh, the Charlie Chaplin film Gold Rush, which we talked about last week on the show. And before we even get into that, I want to remind you to head on over to Pod. Swag, where you can pick up an amazing poster that follows along with us as we count down our top 100 films on the AFI list. It's a beautiful design poster designed by Scott Campbell. You can check that out. You could also go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to check out some of our great shirts like our classic, and it seems like our bestseller, uh, BDE, with Jimmy Stewart on the front there. We got to get more shirts there, but uh, go over there. Check that out. Um, so- yeah, we got to invent something dumb. I know, I know. We need to we need to go into. It. I still like the leper shirt a lot. I feel like our shirts are good, but people aren't buying them with the uh, with the reckless abandon that I thought. So head on over to T Public, buy I'm, some shirts. I'm very shocked that people aren't wearing a shirt that says "I love lepers." Yeah, come on, they should. I'm shocked that people are. We talked about Charlie Chaplin last week uh, in the Gold Rush, and it seemed like so many people were on board with this this Chaplin film. Um, what did you see on the boards? Michael Boyce at M.W. Boyce said, you know, I haven't watched The Gold Rush for years, and I'd only seen the 1942 version. Watched the 1925, and whoa. Michael Boyce, by the way, says he frequently teaches City Lights, and he was really struck by the parallels between the two, the two films. You know, the idea of social isolation with the tramp, the idea of a woman who's unable to see. You know, a thing that happens with Georgia, with Georgia, and also quite literally with the girl that he's in love with in City Lights. You know, last week we talked a little bit about new metal. There's a little bit of discussion, like what constitutes as new metal. Because we were talking about things going out of fashion and how out of fashion silent was when when 
when Chaplin tried to redo the Gold Rush in 42. Right. So the internet's dad, uh, the Jed Gentry, uh, said, well, look, the unspoken premise in your last episode is that the Gold Rush is Limp Biscuit. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. And then... Yes, nobody would disagree with that statement. <laughs> so uh, he continues to write, does that mean that Limp Biscuit needs to release a special silent version of their award-winning Chocolate Starfish album? Here's my question. Is a silent version... Silence. And if it is, does that make that version better or worse than the actual album? I will say that Daniel Antonio at Daniel A321, mm-hmm. he mentioned something glaringly obvious that I think proves that neither one of us are, are, are new metal fans, uh-huh. which is that there's actually a new metal band called AFI. Oh, I saw that online. Yes. Well, gosh, we should have known that. Oh, look, uh, the critiques didn't stop there, Amy. Uh, Lars Anderson wrote, I'll probably keep on going back and forth on this a dozen times, but I think Chaplin has made better movies. City Lights, Modern Times, and The Dictator, the latter, which isn't even on the list, um, is better than Gold Rush. The strongest scenes are the ones in the cabin, and I'm not as fond as the in-town scenes. It's a wonderful movie, just not Chaplin's best. Those are bear fighting words. I mean, there they are. I mean, look, well, we can really kind of get into it, and maybe it's even worth us uh, jumping into The Dictator at one point to kind of watch that oh, and I'd see, you know, where that kind of, maybe uh, time that out for election. Um, and then- There's an election? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's some of the critiques that people brought up about Gold Rush. And uh, before we get into our film for today, which is The Wild Bunch, we asked people how they would cast a modern version of The Wild Bunch. I would cast Josh Brolin as Pike Bishop, Sean Penn as Deke Thornton, and Russell Crowe as Dutch Engstrom. Thanks. Danny Trejo being hunted by Sigourney Weaver. If the Wild Bunch has to be remade, I guess give me Brian Cranston as Pike, Antonio Banderas as Thornton, and J.K. Simmons as Dutch. I think for the modern Wild Bunch, I'm going to cast um, Sam Waterston as Pike and Martin Sheen as uh, Dee Thornton because they have such great chemistry on Grace and Frankie. Hi, this is Ron in New York. The Wild Bunch 2020, starring Adam Sandler being chased by his former partner, Kevin James. Adam Sandler's ragtag of misfits includes Chris Rock, David Spade, and Rob Schneider. Regulators! Emilio Estevez is the leader of the gang, and Lou Diamond is hunting him down. Ron in New York has to know that Adam Sandler basically made this movie, right? It's called The Ridiculous Six. I can't be the only person who has seen the Adam Sandler Netflix Western, that is... Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, you got Luke Wilson, Terry Crews. Taylor Lautner! Taylor Lautner's good in it. I'm not kidding. I'm not saying anybody should watch The Ridiculous Six if you don't have to. No, 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 no. But if you did, Taylor Lautner is the best part of that movie. That was Simple Jack performance, wasn't it, Amy? I thought his comedic timing was better than everybody else in that movie. I'm serious. It made me open to the idea of ever seeing another Taylor Lautner movie in my life. Which hasn't happened, I guess. Well, I mean, there you go. Um, I'm going to talk to you about one thing that I thought was interesting. You know, The person who brought up that Emilio Estevez and Lou Diamond Phillips should be in a movie together, it reminded me of a movie. He called it Regulators. Um, And I remembered this movie that I loved called Renegades. Uh, which was uh, Kiefer Sutherland. 
and Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, which I loved as a kid. I'm trying to find it online right now, but I, I, I can't. But uh, it's a good action movie. It's not exactly that same plot, obviously. It's not a Western. It's like a buddy cop movie. But Have uh, we all just decided we're going to sit here and pretend Young Guns 1 and 2 don't exist? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I forgot all about that. Oh, my gosh. Those movies are great, too. Or are they great or they remember them being great? In my memory, they're cl- the greatest cinema that was ever created I mean, when come I was on. a child. I 1 million percent agree with you. Uh, well, let's get into it, Amy. Are you ready to unspool the wild bunch? The year is 1969. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are the first humans to walk on the moon. Senator Ted Kennedy drives his car off a bridge in Chappaquiddick. The Manson family murders Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas. Over 400,000 people attend Woodstock, and the Beatles record Abbey Road. The top movies of the year are Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Easy Rider, Hello, Dolly, Midnight Cowboy, and today's film, The Wild Bunch. It's ranked number 79 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, up one point from its position at number 80 in 1997. Amy, let's listen to a clip. What are your plans? Drift around down here? Try to stay out of jail? Well, me and the boys here, we got some work to do. You want to come along? Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. The Wild Bunch, as you could probably infer from the list of movies that Paul just read out, comes during the 1969 re-interest in these modern westerns with a little bit of a bloody, morbid, cynical air to it. We're a couple years post Bonnie and Clyde, and now the films that were influenced by Bonnie and Clyde are coming out. The Wild Bunch is the bloodiest of the bunch. I think we can say that pretty clearly. It is directed by Sam Peckinpah. It stars William Holden, who we've seen before in Sunset Boulevard, and Ernest Borgnine, who we talked about when we mentioned Marty, as two of the people who lead this wild bunch, this group of people who run around stealing guns, trying to rob banks, making money however they can, being pursued by William Holden's ex-partner, played by Robin Ryan. His name is Deke Thornton here in the film. And basically, this is about men living in almost a liminal state between the end of the Western era, which should be pretty much over, but they're still making it work, even though cars are starting to exist, even though the world is changing and their way of life can only end in one way. It absolutely gory, 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 bloody battle that was so disgusting that when people first saw this film in 1969 at a test screening, they went outside and they threw up. Wow. You know, this movie is really interesting to me because just on the basis of how it looks, it looks dirtier, messier, and sweatier than any film that we've done on this list. And and we've done a lot of war pictures and we've done a lot of cowboy pictures and we'll talk about how this kind of upends the cowboy film but just the look of it i feel like there are shots that are slightly out of focus and it it just feels like you're kind of getting through muck it's such a very stylized um picture that i just that image of just messy really feels like it encompasses what this what is so interesting about this movie, it, it feels as messy and as dirty as the battles are. Because even Bonnie and Clyde, which is super bloody, 
it's still a very clean movie, beautifully shot, uh, composed. And this is just frantic cuts and really just, I would imagine, incredibly jarring. Like you said, it would make someone vomit. Uh, the same way that I think the people, when they saw Cloverfield, you know, like when it was uh, the first perspective, you know, first person perspective, like, you know, like the camera's moving around so much. This amount of cuts in a movie must have just been so jarring to uh, an audience of 1969. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the closest thing we've had on this list that we've gone to so far to like a classic exploitation picture. You know, the right. kind of thing that we'd be playing at drive-ins, the kind of thing that teenagers would be making out to in American graffiti. You know, this is the dirtiest, grossest version we've got. And it was very avant-garde, honestly, at the time. I mean, the editor of The Wild Bunch said, you know, the opening battle that we have that starts here, you have the Wild Bunch riding into town, disguised as soldiers, robbing a bank, these other people on town who turn out to actually be more of like the cops, bounty holders, having this giant shootout in the middle of a town. The the editor of this film, Lou Lombardo, said, you know, when I first edited that battle together, this giant street fight, I did it normally. I did it the way a normal film would do with this street battle, and it was 21 minutes long. Wow. And then I went in, and then I just chopped it the hell up. I made it chaotic. I made it crazy. I made people just shots of them quickly falling out of a building, but never hitting the ground, just in the air. I made it so that in one second, you're over here on this angle, and then all of a sudden, you're breaking that perspective, and you're over here. And then for one minute, you're in the eyes of a guy who's falling off a horse, but just a second, and then you're over here as somebody gets shot. And he made it deliberately disorienting to capture this chaos, because there is no way of orienting yourself in the way that he edits it. There's no traditional sense of this is north, this is south, that person's running from this direction. You can't tell anything. You know, this film contains 2,721 edits in 138 minutes of action. That means the average shot length is three seconds. And the shootout at the Bloody Porch has 325 edits in five minutes of action. That means that the shot length there is one second it's interesting because now I think we're used to it. Like it doesn't, it's not jarring to me, but what I really like about this movie is not only is it jarring in the way that the action is perceived, but they throw you right into the film. You're the, the ride has started. You have to catch up with the film. And they, I think. Yeah. You don't know the bad guys are the bad guys until halfway through the battle until maybe when the battle is over, you don't know who's right and wrong. And that's, I think part of it. Yeah. And, and the backstory is kind of, um, dribbled out throughout the film, you know, through maybe two or three flashback scenes that I think are really artfully done. And those sequences are oddly cleaner and more traditional than the rest of the film. The rest of the film, you have the wild bunch essentially trekking their way into Mexico. And they are, it it seems like what you were talking about, the end of the cowboy era to a certain degree. Like it, it feels like, the film is running out. Like, th- like this is what happened. This is the last batch of film for cowboys. Like, I, I, don't, I think there's some aesthetic here that we're capturing too. It's not the clean cut cowboy film that we are used to seeing. It's true. Like, I when I was rewatching this film, I kept thinking to myself, "When is this taking place?" Yeah, you know, because you have some sort of tiny clues. This first town that you visit, where this opening shootout is, it doesn't look like the Wild West town we've seen in other earlier films. You know. There's some pavement. People pave the sidewalks here. It looks yeah. a little bit more modern, but it, you're still kind of disoriented. It's a middle-class looking town. The people seem fairly civilized. It doesn't look as wild as the Wild Wests of the past that we've had. No. The wooden saloon doors. You know, we're a step above that here. 
I do love that, like, we're in this moment of the temperance movements gaining strength, which was a huge thing that was happening in the teens here in America. And you have this preacher leading the temperance revival. And there's this little bit of humor that the townspeople sitting very faithfully, acting like good citizens at this meeting, will not really swear to giving up booze. Listen to the way they mumble this line. I solemnly promise God helping me. I solemnly promise God helping me. To abstain from all distilled fermented malt liquors, including wine, beer, and cider. To abstain from all wine, yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, thank you, please. But yeah, to put this film, The Wild Bunch, in chronological context, which I really wanted to do when I was watching this, it takes place about 15 years after the gold rush. Mm-hmm. And it takes place about three years before Lawrence of Arabia, four years before Lawrence of Arabia. Right. So all of these films that seem kind of epic and timeless and jarring and strange and very, very far away are actually a lot more modern than they seem. Well, it's also, I mean, it's happening, you know, pretty much during the Mexican Revolution of 1916, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's an interesting time. And it's interesting because it's a cowboy movie that I feel like takes place primarily not in the States, you know, which is something that we really haven't seen. Or maybe it has existed. I don't want to say we haven't seen it, but it, that also seems like a rare thing. We're kind of out of... America, and I think that that allows us to get back to kind of the cowboy ways because those that country at that point seems to be a little bit more in that era where America is kind of on the up and up and going forward, and the buildings are getting better and everything like that. So it allows cowboys to still be cowboys. It's almost the place where you can still have these intense gunfights because this intense gunfight and this opening scene where people in the temperance movement are being gunned down. I mean, their bodies are being used as shields to a certain degree. And I have to think that's a little bit of Peckinpah saying like, fuck you to the temperance movement because he's a wild drunk too. Like, I mean, to to him, it's sort of like, yeah, like take down these people. Uh, By the way, we can't talk about the, this intersection without talking about that famous shot of the children and the ants oh, and the yeah. scorpion. And this idea that Peckinpah sets up really early on that children are influenced by the violence that they see around them and Mm -hmm. that we should all be using this as a cautionary tale. And how much in the course of this film he keeps cutting back to kids, cutting back to kids. Spoiler alert. I mean, the downfall of our lead character is because a child is mimicking the violence that he sees. Exactly. And I really find this scorpion scene so sad because – you know, you're watching this one, Scorpion, being tortured by ants, and there's no way that this was ASPCA friendly. I'm oh, not God, even no. sure those horses were treated ASPCA friendly. No, I don't think you can drop a horse off here. a bridge like that. No, yeah. but what makes me so sad is that at the end of the scene with these kids and the swarm of ants and the scorpion is you see that there's a bigger scorpion who starts crawling into the frame to try to rescue his friend. Mm. And that's, I guess in a way that's what the ending is. You have this group of wild bunch men coming in to rescue their friend Angel who's near death. Like the big scorpion, and then all the ants and everybody dies. Oh, Amy, I'm so That's sorry. It's really sad. I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I can't believe that me as a go go group in Texas with scorpions in my Girl Scout camp bunk, terrified of them, feels bad for a scorpion, but I do. I, I can't believe in a movie filled with as much death as this film that you are really taking it on the chin for the scorpion. The scorpion! It's the real death. It's my nature! That's Every- what the scorpion does. He's a hey. killer! Everybody else stood up and washed off their blood. Maybe the way to make real violence feel real is this real violence with the scorpion who doesn't live. The scorpion doesn't the have The scorpion squids. knew what he was getting into. I don't think so. 
I think uh, Peckinpah was like drunk the entire time he made this film. Is basically <laughs> what I've heard. Well, he seems like, and I'm sure you have a lot of research on him, like an insane person. Like it, it literally <laughs> seems like working for Peckinpah was a great place to have amazing stories, but in the moment, pretty heinous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the psychoanalysis of Peckinpah is that he grew up a little bit like George Lucas. He grew up an upper middle class kid, fairly posh, fairly pampered here in California. He apparently looked like a girl when he was a kid. His mom had wanted a daughter. She had a daughter after him. But when she had him, she was just sort of seized on it. And she was like, oh, this is my beautiful looking feminine spirited son. Meanwhile, his grandfather had been... Um, more of a pioneer type. He had like come across the mountains and made it to California and then the family had planted roots and then his his father had grown up more wealthy. But his grandfather would take him out on the weekends and be like, you gotta hunt, you gotta kill, you gotta shoot things. And Peckinpah was not that into it really. But wow. I think he always felt a little between two worlds that his grandpa thought he looked too pretty. And so his grandpa was like, go kill things. But he was this pampered rich kid who wanted to prove himself. Here's just Ali McGraw's theory about it. Ali McGraw worked with him on his film um, after this called The Getaway, which I love a lot. Oh, Getaway is fantastic. Getaway. Uh, what do you think? Getaway with Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger better than the Ali McGraw, Steve wow. McQueen version? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> his feminine side, his soft side was far and I don't mean this in a homosexual sense. I just mean that, that Sam had a very, very strong feminine side, and I think it scared him to death, and he overreactively put a lid on it whenever he was aware enough to watch it sneak out. And so then after this, what happens to him after he grows up and leaves the house is when he's 18, he signs up to join the Marines. It's 1943. He doesn't fight, but he's sent to China where he just witnesses a lot of horrible things happen. One day he saw a group of prisoners being taken by the balls. They had tied them together Ooh. by the balls and were dragging them to prison to stay up for the night. And he went to his commander. He's like, what are we going to do about these guys? Can we get them out? Can we help at all? And his prisoner was like, that's not our problem. And he just sat in front of the prison and felt powerless and angry. And he witnessed so many atrocities that I think he just got scarred. He... There's, he tells this story, you know, he spent a lot of time at brothels. He spent a lot of time drinking whiskey that was sometimes fatal or poisonous. He saw one of his fellow Marines rape and almost kill a local Chinese woman, and he was so enraged by this that he talks about getting a knife, and he was walking up to the guy to kill him, to stab him in the throat the next day, when he realized the guy had just drunk some of the booze that made him go blind, and that he couldn't see that Peckinpah was about to stab him. And so he comes back to America really traumatized, really feeling like, I have seen what man can do to man. I have seen this violence and this inhumanity, and you people don't understand. You know, I need to make you people understand what I've seen. And so he makes the bloodiest Western anybody's ever seen. Well, and it seems like he's a a person who is attracted to this type of story because he started off as a director for like a TV show called The Rifleman. Like, so he was living in this world as he first started working. It wasn't like, oh, he you know, was doing romance films and he got pulled into this. Like he, it's interesting to see someone who exists in the surround right, get to redefine it and, and show it for 
how actually violent it is because I think we uphold the Western genre to be this very, for lack of a better term, like a patriotic, you know, like, oh, that's where the real men were and they defended the honor of people. And yes, even though there were, you know, uh, sex workers, they they were kind to them and only the bad guys were bad to them. And, you know, and, and here's a movie that I think you described it really appropriately at the top. It's a grindhouse movie. It is, it has all that, tone and texture to it. And it reminds me of so many films that come after it. I mean, like I couldn't help but see the comparison of Pulp Fiction to a certain degree too, or maybe even better Reservoir Dogs. Like this idea of like, we're just showing you stuff. I remember seeing that ear cut off scene in Reservoir Dogs and being like, I've never seen what? I've never seen anything like this. You know, not in a a horror movie. That's me also, you know, in, uh, you know, before high school, just seeing something so violent just blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I wish I could erase my brain and go back to being a person who would have thrown up in 1969. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had it grown up with so many images of violence that this feels normal to me. It feels obscene that this is normal. Well, I think, you know, this is something that in a way is not even normal, but it it almost feels passe and the and the bloodshed is not as violent as we are even used to it's true he's not watching it go through a person no. and come out and seeing the organs it's restrained for what will come next exactly you know what i just was thinking about it as i was talking about reservoir dogs another good example of this uh idea of like violence to kind of show atrocities and to show all these problems. I was thinking about Verhoeven's RoboCop. Like that first RoboCop is- I love that movie. Oh, it's an amazing film, but also that level of, you know, incredible brutality. And I think it's a a really interesting, you know, uh, thematically what it's trying to do there. Talk about violence and and crime and police and the use of, you know, extreme force. And I think- they're doing that here. I mean, that machine gun, I think the most memeable thing from this film, uh, and probably not even memeable like you have a gif of it, but is that image of that Gatling machine gun. Like, I've seen that image. I've never seen this movie before watching this uh, last night, but that image is in my head as like, that's part of the, the American cinema landscape. Like, blah, 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 you know, that, that crazy yeah. machine Let's gun. Let's just hear it. Let's yeah. just hear it to set the tone for the climax of this film. some grenades you got a little bit of everything and before this apparently most big gun bottle battles all kind of sounded the same you know warner brothers movies they would use just the same gun over right. and over and again and peck and was like oh no i need these to be distinct well that's the same way we talked about in bonnie and clyde the idea of shooting a shotgun into a garbage can to give it that kind of real bam like you know that, that really loud pop and there is something jarring about this movie but there's something so poetic about it too because there's no music underneath this battle scene. The the music yeah, it's not is like, the bullet. It's not heroic. It's no. Not. But to your point about RoboCop, I think both of these movies have the same intention and I think they have the same audience problem. That both of these movies are made with a way of saying, this is not good. Like Paul Verhoeven didn't make RoboCop to say like, yay, the world needs more RoboCop. No. But you go to RoboCop and you're like, oh, I feel this agony. And then an hour later, you're like, that was awesome. RoboCop. Let me get a RoboCop costume. I know. I know. It's it's a tricky thing because I think inevitably 
Whenever you see violence like this, I know we've talked about this uh, movie a bunch, but that Joaquin Phoenix movie that he did with Lynn Ramsey, like you were never really here. I really was worried you were going to say that other Joaquin Oh, no, no, no. It's one of the few movies with a lot of violence and she doesn't show a lot of the violence. She kind of cuts around it. You see like the after effects of it that make you feel the heaviness of it. But when you see John Wick or Taken or Robocop, you're inevitably left with the idea of, whoa, those are badasses. And the Wild Bunch, there is an element of it. There is something sad about them too because they are kind of getting too old for this shit. You know, they're, they're, they are- and One last heist and then we're out. Yeah, and, and very rarely do you get to see older actors doing this kind of a role. And we saw John Wayne in The Searchers, but this is, you know, uh, it's interesting to have a band of- of guys who are aging out and the country's going by them. It's it's a really beautiful idea. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I just wanted to talk about one thing. You played that clip from Ali McGuire about him having this feminine side. And there's this thing I found with Ernest Borgnine talking about Peck and Paul wrestling with the content of this film. And I thought that was really interesting. We were coming back from lunch one afternoon and Sam is walking along with his head kind of low. I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, Sam, what's the matter? He said, I'm worried. I said, worried? About what? He said, I don't know. He said, I, I hesitate getting into this next, next thing, you know, with all this. And I said, Sam... What are you worried about? You've got a great picture going here. Let the blood flow. What the hell do you care? Let it go. And he looked at me, you know, and he said, by golly, we will. <laughs> I saw him with bottles of blood going around and laying it in. And uh, bless his heart, he, he, he just, I know he adored the film. He really did. I just thought it was interesting that even while making it, he was wrestling with how violent it was because I could imagine this could be the end of a career. Like this could be a movie. And like you said, people are vomiting in the street. The studio is begging him to change it. Um, you know, that he's making a big swing. And before hearing his background, I'm like, oh, this is like a cocksure kind of John Houston kind of filmmaker, like blow them the fuck up. And to know that he wasn't exactly that is kind of a really interesting way of looking at this film. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of both. He's kind of everything. He's a thousand percent a mess. You know, his nephew, um, David, has all of these wild stories about him. Like, his nephew, David, was like, 
oh man, when I turned 16, he took me to a brothel. He was like, it's time for you to lose your virginity, son. And you should probably try two girls just so you know what it's like. <sighs> and then when that was over, he was like, you should have the other prostitutes in town. So he took him to three brothels in one night for six women. And then he was like, happy 16th birthday, son. And that was also Peckinpah. Wow. I, he mean, also, I mean, he tells a story too, but like one That's time- in the movie though. I mean, our, the two of the guys from the Wild Bunch are talking about how they had these two women, you know, like, and, and then they, that's one of the first- great moments of the film when they all just start laughing you know they're they're talking about the gold and and you know the supplies are like well you should have instead of preparing for the gig you should have just been with these prostitutes and they all have that like very long it's almost like the end of a sitcom where it's like and we all learned our lesson <laughs> and freeze but they never freeze they just laugh and it's kind of the way the movie bookends too it's like their joy is in that like in talking about these prostitutes yeah I mean there's definitely a thing in this movie where women are to him prostitutes well I, I mean, mean there's no way around that like literally, there's no way around that in this film I mean literally the women who frolic with Lyle and Hector in the wine vats were not played by professional actresses. They were sex workers from a nearby brothel. Uh, and he hired them just so he could tell Warner Brothers that they paid for hookers. Wow. That I mean, that is, you <laughs> okay. know, whether or not, uh, you know, that could be apocryphal, but I and don't Warner think Brothers it, is like, and? But by the way, but everything you said, it just makes me feel like this is somebody who is acting out. In, in a way, you know, it's like, what else can I do? That's exactly it. I mean, you sense a little bit of posturing, right? Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. I sense that he is agonized about what he has seen and what he knows. And I think he's also agonized about the, how the world sees him. I mean, another story that I really love that David said was one time they went to a restaurant and the cook at the restaurant was refusing to put onions in the hash browns. And so Peck and Paul was like, David, get my pistol. I'm going to shoot this guy. Like what? Like who who threatens to shoot a man over onions in your hash browns unless you're trying to prove something to somebody? But yeah, do you think all of this is him hiding his insecurity about his sexuality? I'm making a very giant statement here. I don't know if he is a gay man, but there's something about it that it it seems like he could be. I think he's uncomfortable. I think he's definitely uncomfortable. I mean, I want I want to think he's correct about the idea that cinema has failed to present violent death as something true. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is a thousand percent true. And to me, I think I've grumbled about this before. Like, one of the things I find most offensive is when you go to a Marvel movie and we shoot down an airplane of the bad guys and three dozen bad guys just disappear in a PG-13 movie and nobody cares. Right. I find that really repugnant. This is kind of the backlash that you got in the DCU, which was in the first Superman movie, the amount of destruction that was happening in that city, all these people were being killed. And and then Marvel tries to remedy that by doing a weird ass thing in Avengers 2 where they like isolate all the people and like lift them up or they fight out. It like movies start to address it like, well, we'll fight in an airfield. Uh we'll fight. You know, it's like um, but it's also really speciesist. Marvel is always just like, let's just kill a bunch of aliens who look sort of like bugs. I mean, they're you're, still people. I'm uh, sure they 100%. have families. <laughs> but I think all that is fine and good. The idea of showing the violence of the film, the violence of what the Old West was, who these people were. But the off-camera antics on top of that, you don't need to do both. You know, you don't need to act like... For example, Quentin Tarantino 
I know that there's some stories about him being a tough director with like Uma Thurman on Kill Bill, but relatively, besides foot fetishes, we're not seeing Quentin Tarantino going like, I'm going to take a gun and put it to your head if you don't give me hash browns. Like, but he's a a person who's known for showing extreme violence. And and I think there's a, a bunch of examples like that, but uh, of other directors and they don't, they're not carrying themselves like that. Like they can be hard directors, but it seems like Peckinpah was drinking himself to an extreme. And, you know, Ernest Borgnine would say, well, that's only on the off days. Uh, he's firing 22 cast members. There's a great story. I, I don't want to play the whole clip. I just will kind of surmise the story. There's a stuntman working on the film. And he said, you know, Peckinpah just did everything the way that he wanted to do it. And he's like, and I was... Um, I was, you know, the stuntman for one of the main characters and I had this wig on and I was fully in costume, but I didn't want to put on the beard. The beard was terrible. I hated the beard. It took me five minutes to put it on, but it always fell off. And we never knew when we were shooting. We were just on hold. And I told him, I will not put on this beard. You fucking fire me. I'm not putting on this beard until I know that we're shooting the scene because I'm not sitting around in this fake beard. So... He's in costume for three days. He's not been used for three days. And they find out, we're going to now shoot the scene. So this is day three. He's not been in the beard. He finds out they're shooting the scene. He puts on the beard. And he's on one side of the rock, and Peckinpah's on the other side of the rock. And one of the ADs, the assistant director, is like throwing him under the bus. Like, oh, we would have been ready, sir. You know, because everyone's trying to appease Peckinpah. Like, we would have been ready, sir, but somebody didn't want to put on their beard. And he goes, you didn't want to put on his beard? And fucking fire his ass. And then that guy heard him went around, look at Peckinpah, ripped off his beard. He's like, yeah, fucking fire me and get me a car to go home. And he stared down Peckinpah like he was going to fight him. And Peckinpah said, uh, he basically like looked at him. He's like, I will always hire you for every movie that you're in. And that was it. And they had this like long lasting career because someone stood up to him. He said like Peckinpah, he, I think, wanted to be challenged. He wanted to have this energy. So I think, I think he wanted someone to maybe put him in his place a little bit or something. I don't know. But the idea that this guy like went toe to toe with him and he's like, I'll work with you for the rest of my career. And then did is crazy. I mean, imagine if these guys could just put their tiny pistols back in their pocket and we yeah. could all relax a little bit and just have some craft services. You know, the train scene was apparently improvised. Did you know that? It was really? not in the script. Yeah. Yeah. Like that train robbery was not in the script. They said all the scenes were improvised on the spot, which makes no sense to me. And including like that, that amazing scene that reminded me of Reservoir Dogs where they walk to go get Angel, you know, where they're, where they're all kind of marching up to uh, the general. He just felt like, fuck it, we'll do this, we'll do this. And it just like, how many things could you throw before someone would say stop? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like from everything I've heard about the time on the set, it felt lawless like making yeah. this film itself. We had one of our live shows at the Alamo Draft House and we talked a lot about Yakima Knut. Yeah. Um, the famous stuntman who came up with so many of the classic John Wayne stunts, you know, the leaping from horse to horse. He had two sons who were also stuntmen and these stu- these sons were also on this picture as stuntmen here um, for Sam Peckinpah. And they were aghast. They were so upset by the way that his own crew was handling things like blowing up this bridge. Yeah. When they blow up a bridge and there's all these horses on it. And they just didn't trust him. They didn't trust Peckinpah. They didn't trust the guy with the dynamite. They actually convinced a man that if last minute, right before the man hit the plunger on the button, they convinced a man standing behind that guy that if he just didn't trust that guy last minute to hit the plunger man on the back of a head with a shovel and knock him out so that he wouldn't hit the plungers so that they wouldn't all die. 
Wow. I mean, there's crazy self-sabotaging it, even within this, the way that like the wild bunch men themselves are bickering over their goals. Everybody's a little bit selfish in it for themselves. I mean, maybe Peckinpah is essentially playing the head of the wild bunch. I mean, he's like, you hear about a lot of actors going method, you know, could this director be going method? Could he be like, I'm running my set like I would be running my crew. You know, I'll be verbally abusive. I'll be tough on them. I will challenge them. I will make them work hard, you know, for the treasure of, of I guess, having a great movie. I mean, he's hiring it like he's hiring his own wild bunch. You know, Warren Oates, who was doing this film, like, he was on a lot of drugs the whole time they were shooting this movie. Oh, really? He said all of the actors who were playing the people in the Mexican army were just stoned constantly. <sighs> Everybody on this set was a little bit mental. I mean, to take one minor character, for example, mm -hmm. we only see him uh, twice in the film pretty early on. Um, his name is Albert Decker. He plays Pat Harrigan, the man who hires Thornton to go running after William Holden and capture Pike Bishop and all of his men. This story, be prepared. It's a little bit creepy. Okay. So while they were shooting this on location in Mexico, Albert Decker had a 13-year-old girl with him that he was just saying was his wife. Oh, boy. And then when his footage was over, he flew back to L.A. William Holden flew back to L.A. just for a little bit of a weekend because one of his friends died and he wanted to go to the funeral. So while he's in Wimp. L.A. Wow. So while he's in L.A., he sees Albert Decker driving down the street, but he doesn't say hi. The very next day, Albert Decker is found dead in his house. Whoa. Listen to these circumstances. So he's found dead in his house. His feet are bound together. He's handcuffed behind his back. He has a ball gag in his mouth. Ooh. He's blindfolded. He has a belt around his neck that's connected to uh, the shower rod. So he hung himself. He has hypodermic needles all in his arms. And then in lipstick on his belly, he has somebody drew a vagina. Uh, and they also wrote slave. And then they wrote make me suck on his body. And that's how they found him. Um, but the bathroom door was locked from the inside of one of those chain locks. Yeah. And so they said it was suicide. Wow. So that's wow. the kind of people who is being hired to work on the wild bunch. I mean, well, look, let's, let's, uh, let's balance out the, uh, the, the, <laughs> that was the a lot. I'm I mean, sorry. that's a lot, by the way, it's a lot. And also, uh, brings us back to Pulp Fiction once again, uh, with the gimp. Um, oh yeah. I'm, there's probably no doubt that Tarantino knows that story. You know, what I would say about this movie, which is really interesting, too, is we've done a lot of films where uh, we talk about, you know, these period pieces or these movies that take place in different countries. And um, for lack of a better term, there's a whitewashing going on, not necessarily in the story, but yes, in the story a little bit, but more in the actors, right? You have Alec Guinness playing someone who is, you know, basically an, an Indian man, right? You have, you have a lot of people playing ethnicities uh, as white men that are not those ethnicities. And this film, you know, uh, there are 40 performers credited at the end of the film and 24 of them are Latinos. And I think that that's a really cool thing to see here as well. I mean, because I feel like that's something that we don't really see at this time that much. It's true. I mean, Peckinpah had studied for a little bit in Mexico, and so had Waylon Green, who wrote the screenplay. And I feel like both of them had a lot of respect for the look and sound of Mexico. I mean, it feels like this is a version of Mexico. You know, the way that Sam Peckinpah wanted violence to look real, he wanted Mexico to look real. Yeah. And I have a lot of respect for that. 
you know, that he insisted on this. And he had already gotten fired for that once before. Like one time he was trying to write a script about Pancho Villa for mm-hmm. Paramount. And it was supposed to have Yul Brenner star in it. And he wrote it as a Pancho Villa movie with a lot of Spanish. And Yul Brenner was like, no. And he got him fired. And Paramount ended up kicking him off the lot for that. So that he put his foot down in these little ways to make, say, a lot of the women and children that you see here actually look like they are from Mexico. He had a real problem with what he called kind of the, I don't know, Sophia Lorenning of Mexican women, that they were just, you know, not Mexican at all, with a lot of tan, you know, tiny belts and very va-va-voom looking. Yeah. And he was like, let them look the way that people look. I, I felt like there And let them be sex symbols. And I actually repeat, like, in, in the scenes with the prostitutes who are having a ton of fu- fun, like, swimming in wine, yeah. I respect that he lets them be sex symbols. Yeah, they, I mean, he portrays the culture with respect. And what's happening in this world, like, they haven't figured out, like, this Mexican town that they're in, like, you know, they're torturing and beating Angel I think for good cause. Like, Angel shot this man's, you know, yes, it was his former girlfriend. But, like, like it's not like, oh, poor Angel. Like, Angel's did some fucked up stuff there, you know. So, it's like they're, I, I just think it's uh, it's something that, again, for 1969, incredibly weird. And I want to just call out Alfonso Aro. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. But he is uh, in this movie, uh, fantastic in this movie. And I popped out of my seat when I saw him because... Immediately, I go, El Guapo from Three Amigos. He's essentially doing like a version of Mapache uh, to a certain degree. Like, you know, like, and it's sort of, I think as I'm watching Three Amigos, I'm like, oh, they're calling back to Wild Bunch to a certain extent. And he's also, uh, you would recognize him uh, also from Romancing the Stone. Uh, Just as a kid, this face was like burnt into my brain. So, you know, when I saw him, I literally just like, popped out of my seat and was so uh, excited to see him as a young guy. And he's great in the film and and fun and a little bit bizarre, uh, really fun. Well, and even the name Mapache, I think, is really interesting because, you know, the linguistic origin of it is it means raccoon, but it actually evolved further back from an Aztec word meaning thief. Oh, and so he picked the name of a character here that he thought really represented a lot of Mexican history, of the evolution of the people of this town, of the way the word worked. So he... He was smart about it. You know, he wasn't just naming him some sort of like right. dumb, easy to remember, Sanchez. gringo yeah. sounding word. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, his respect, I mean, I guess this is the thing we're going to be stumbling over this whole episode. Like there's so much I respect about Peckinpah and so much that makes me deeply uneasy and uncomfortable. Well, I think if we can, you know, not to be redundant because we talk about this a lot. If there's a line that we can draw that connects all the AFI films, the directors of them are for the most part problematic. There are these elements, these people who have pushed their crews too far, they've pushed themselves too far, um, and not all, but I would say if we were putting it, if we were drawing a pile, the pile of problematic directors, and not saying like problematic, like they didn't live, they, they're just hard. They're hard living, want perfection, and in a way, I guess you could maybe draw a line and say, well, to get a movie that lives on forever and to have this kind of level of success, you need to be this hard. Um, but also we're we're seeing a lot of white men be these directors. So we're not really seeing 
you know, the quality of other filmmakers. It's, and we're not hearing about any of the women on the list because they're silence and crickets and tumbleweed. Of 100%. I mean, um, but yeah, but I mean, I hopefully think, they said yeah. that next year they will let uh, women on the AFI list, which is exciting, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they'll see. I mean, they're going to see and they'll kind of play with it, play it by ear. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I think to your point, we have an image as our culture of what a director looks like. And mm-hmm. it's a dude who comes striding on. He's yelling into a bullhorn. He maybe has boots on. His breath smells like whiskey. And he's like, you get over here. Hey, you, do what I say. Right. This is, I'm in charge. This is my rodeo. And we've seen that play out in so many of our directors. All of them have a little bit of element of that. Like, oh, that guy, he didn't like to listen to other people's advice. That guy, no. he had to do it his way. And it's a self-perpetuating death machine at this point that we keep idolizing this view of director and saying well that's what a director looks like which i think is really why we keep winding up not nominating women for directing awards because it doesn't fit this template right it it seems like the thing that needs to be rewarded is the hard effort right oh my god i can't believe that he made them drink sewer water for a week to get that scene you know it's like that i mean the whole idea of like you know, I think DiCaprio is a great actor, but it sort of took him to eat a raw bear heart before, you know, it's like, wow, that's acting. Like, you know, yeah. I, Actually, it's not. It's just literally doing a stunt on camera. You know, but OK. But uh, and, and by the way, like, I just think that those showy things we're going to get into this conversation this year about 1917. It's an insane directorial feat and and it should be applauded. But sometimes that insanity of, and we talk about Birdman winning. It it's like, whoa, did you? Can you? And that represents directing, but you don't notice like the more subtle things, like in A Little Women, where she contemporizes something that's period. That that's such a hard thing, I think, to do as a director. Yes, you can write that that way, and you can you can cast great people, but like she direct like that's a but that's subtle. It's not it's not as interesting. I also think Parasite is a very simple film. But really beautifully directed. But it's nothing. Sh- it's not incredibly showy. Yeah, I mean, I f- I feel like we overvalue stunts mm-hmm. and the wow factor. Like, can you believe? Like you're saying, and we undervalue things like actors looking like they're listening and reacting to each other mm-hmm. and actual emotions that carry you from one scene to the next. I I think because you just absorb those and you can't leave afterwards and be like, wow, that way, like scene 12 just played straight into scene 13. And I was so engaged in how that character was feeling. That's a lot harder than saying, do you remember when the sidewalk folded up on itself? And then like, I was upside down. And then, whoa. you give that credit a lot of the times to the actor. Like, oh, the actor was so good in it. But, Mm. you know, film is a collaborative process. And I think that some of the best performances are are dictated by fantastic directors. I think that's why you see a lot of times, and I want to get into naming names, but some people win an Academy Award and they never achieve that kind of acting status again. It's not like, you know, it's sort of like they're one-hit wonders in the sense of that was their time to win an Academy Award. There, uh, And it's because they were under, I think, a good director, probably, and a good script. There's a, mi- a million things, but a director is so crucial in that amazing performance, you know, it's like, that's why I always laugh at the Academy Awards when you nominate like a screenplay and actors and picture, but not director. It's like, wait, wait, hold on. So the screenplay is great. The movie is great. The actors are great. But the director is not responsible for that. What? What the fuck are we talking about? Like, that's a, that's 
That to me is the biggest crime. Like it really is. You, how can you have a best picture and not nominate the fucking director? What, what's they don't, they don't exist. Like that's saying like the producers created this and great producers are amazing, but like the, it's a very, fr- I don't know. It's a frustrating thing to see that. I don't know. <laughs> you, like there is somebody in that edit room, putting that all together, picking those performances, picking the sound. Yeah. Some people weigh in, but it's, it's, that's a director's medium. You- it's true. I mean, I, f- I feel like for me, myself, like going through this list, if anything, it's really hammered home how collaborative and sometimes circumstantial great movies are. Yeah. You know, we talk about it even when we talk about casting. Like, if this person had been in there and not that person, everything is a piece of a whole. And you really cannot identify. It's It, it makes it hard for me to be a critic, honestly, because the more I do this, the more I become aware of the truth that nobody sets out to make a bad movie. No, I've never, I've never worked on a bad movie until it comes out. Exactly. There's a great, um, I was listening to Mark Maron talk to Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio on WTF. And it was funny because Mark is asking him about their movies and stuff. And Brad Pitt, so wonderfully chill and revealing, you know, he's like, well, what if, what happens when you're like in a bad film? And he was saying it there. He's like, look, you go into the premiere, you're excited to go see it. And within five minutes, you know, it's a fucking turd. And he's like, and then, but like, he doesn't know. And he's Brad Pitt. Like, you know, he should know, like I'm in a turd, but you don't know because you're like, it may come together. You trust somebody to, to put it all together. You think, oh, they have a better idea of it. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was funny. Brett Pitt said something that I really, that, that rung true to me. Like he said, like, you know, you're in a bad movie that at the end of the premiere, people come up to you and they go, wow, the, the music in that was, that was great. <laughs> great. And, and it's hard because everybody I think is putting their heart and soul into everything at all times. And this is where I think I do admire someone like Peckinpah or Kubrick or, you know, uh, any, I mean, look, the list would go on and on. We could basically, Charlie Chaplin, you know, to have the wherewithal to say, no, this is how I'm releasing it. You know, uh, because the from this movie, the test results were like, do not release this film. This is a, this movie is sick. This is the worst potpourri of vulgarity and violence and sex and bloodshed put together. Yeah. They wanted him to cut a new cut of the film to get yeah. a positive response. And he's like, I'll do that. I'll cut the watered down version. But here's my disclaimer. Only one theater gets that. The rest gets the real cut that I made. Yeah. I mean, when they when they first screened this for critics, the press conference the next day sounded like it was one step away from breaking into a riot. Wow. That people were just angry. They're like, how could you even make this film? Why would you do this? And Roger Ebert was like, it's, it's also a masterpiece. And everyone's like, Ebert. Hold on. You know, it, it, it was on the cusp, I feel like, of riots and disaster. I mean, I've been to those premieres at Sundance where a film comes out. This happened with Compliance. I think right. people have maybe started to see Compliance since we talked about it on our end of the decade. When that film screened at Sundance, people were furious with it. You know, And there's that moment where you can never tell what the buzz is going to be on a movie after something like that. Yeah. Especially now in the Twitter age. You know, you go to a Q&A for a premiere – Somebody asks a question, the director handles it badly, and suddenly the film is forever more tainted. Right. And that's all dangerous. I mean, it's, well, it's and, and, art, but, and it's like living and breathing and terrifying. And and it and sometimes it results in a movie like The Wild Bunch, where I respect bits of it. I'm disgusted by bits of it, where I love his intention, and I don't know how I feel about this film. I I would agree with you. I Like, I was thinking very hard about this movie. Like, is this one of the 100 best films 
of all time. And the first question I asked is, does this come out before or after Bonnie and Clyde? Because I think there's an important question about that, you know, this level of violence in the film and it's after Bonnie and Clyde. So it's like, okay. So it's following the footsteps of Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. And, but then I respect the fact of how it looks. It looks unlike anything else and it's bold and it's, you see the Godfather in this, you you know, the gunning down of Sonny Corleone, you see uh, elements, like I said, of Pulp Fiction. You, you see, see Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse like when now. Milius went to go see this film, he came out and he was like, I just saw the film of the year. And then he made George Lucas go and see it. Wow. And so you see the, the films we've been talking about. This is one of the more influential films on the list in terms of what created the modern cinema that we go to on a Friday. Well, and that's what I really thought about was this to me is a better version of Deer Hunter. And I'm going to say why. Because there is some silent reflection in here. There are there is some like angst. I feel like there's some some deeper character stuff going on here. It's hidden a lot more, but like it is this is a movie that takes two and a half hours to tell. And it's a very simple movie. It's like they pull a heist, it was a busted play, they retreat to Mexico, they get caught in a situation where they have to do another job, and then Basically, the it all deconstructs. It's like for beat to beat, it's a very it's it's a small movie. Yeah, those plot points, I think I've seen them recycled at least once a month in a different film. Exactly, and I feel like what goes on here, and what I think makes this movie more resonant to me, is sort of the internal things that are going on in these characters. And I don't know why Deer Hunter came to mind, but I think there's these long scenes where we're just seeing, you know, like the scene. Where he, where our lead character's in, you know, in with his uh, prostitute and, and he's thinking about Angel. And they don't say anything about Angel. They don't tell you all the story. Like, you get to see snippets of it, like I said earlier. Like, and you're watching a lot of inner stuff come out. And it, I think that's the rare thing about this film. It's like, oh, I'm used to seeing violence and violence and violence. And that's making a statement. But this movie's also doing some, I think, some subtly dramatic work in acting under the surface. I mean, I went on a tear and researched what happened to William Holden, you know, our lead as Pike yeah. Bishop, a man who does not talk that much, but seems no. to carry so much weight on his shoulders yeah. throughout the whole film. And, you know, yes, we see some of that play out in things like this flashback where you see him flash back to when he he feels betrayed Thornton and then left him to be captured, left him to be held prisoner and then left him to become basically the gopher boy of Pat Harrigan. I love this flashback because it's just so surrealistic in terms of its sound mixing and yeah. the repetitiveness and the the dreamlike colors that you're right, come out of nowhere. I also love it if you watch this scene again, how the woman at the brothel who opens the door, how they make her look so drunk. I know. She looks drunk. They, she also looks way too 60s. But, but by the way, I thought that was something interesting about that choice it's like that looked like a 60s television show. Yeah. Like the flashback that hot was- pink did not yes. look Western. Like, here's what I'll say. I think the flashbacks are directed to be the flashbacks of what we understand Westerns to be. The safe, clean, like if you saw those two flashback scenes on The Rifleman, you know, um, you would be like, you wouldn't think anything about it. And this is showing, no, no. And now we continue. This is what happens- after that episode of The Rifleman. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. and I, I kind of like that. I feel that like it breaks a spell. It, it, Yeah, it kind of shows you both sides of the coin. I don't know. There was something about that that I thought, 
and maybe I'm totally reading into it, but that's my the way I was watching it last night. I was like, this is conscious. It looks different. Yeah, and you're it looks, right. It does not look the same. And it looks more like quick draw and this, and you know, it, look, it just has some more stylized feel to it. Where it the looks rest of the, lit in a way that yes. nothing else is lit in this. Yeah. Film. Come on, boys. Let's go. Being sure is my business does sound like something a director would say. Yeah. And and I was thinking, you know, one of the people that Sam Peckinpah thought of for this part was Sterling Hayden. Mm. We were talking on the, on the Dr. Strangelove episode about the baggage Sterling Hayden brought to a role like playing an overzealous military commander, given that he was a person who had named names during right. HUAC. William Holden has it had his own type of baggage that I didn't know. And this is something that happened to him after he did Sunset Boulevard. You know, he comes in at Sunset Boulevard being yeah. sort of the young hunk. He was, by the way, a crazy daredevil in ways that I didn't research before. Like, he wasn't famous as a kid for doing things like walking on his hands over the Arroyo Bridge in Pasadena. Oh, wow. He would just – he was always – Walking on telephone lines, getting really drunk and standing telephone on the ledge. Telephone lines? Was he a yeah. pigeon? He is a pigeon. He would, he, he's Walter Pigeon. Now. Um, <laughs> he would get drunk and like hang out on hotel ledges. He was kind of a crazy person, incredibly self destructive, had this tragic love affair between Sunset Boulevard and this film with Audrey Hepburn. They did mm. the film Sabrina together and they were both married and it did not work. But a couple years before he made this film, you know, he became a Swiss citizen because he didn't want to pay taxes. He goes to Europe. He gets a Ferrari. And one night, he's really drunk, and he's driving this Ferrari, and he's going over 100 miles an hour, and he hits a person in a Fiat, and he kills them. Mm. And this is about two years before he starts shooting this film. And I do wonder if there's a little bit of that guilt and heaviness, and here are the things you can't take back, and here are the choices you've made with your life. And people would have known that about him when they cast him in this film. You would have seen him and thought... Maybe that is a man who wishes he could take back some of his actions. So we have a really interesting guest for this episode. We have S. Craig Zoller, a director who's been talked about as kind of the second coming of Peckinpah. It's hard to read a review of one of his movies like Dried Across Concrete or Bronze Cell Block 99 or Conan O'Brien's beloved yes. JV and Bone Tomahawk without seeing critics compare him to, Pe to Peckinpah because his films honestly feel dangerous. And so I think with that in mind, we should bring him on here and ask him about it. Craig, a lot of reviews compare your films to Sam Peckinpah and say they have kind of a Peckinpah energy. And it made me really want to ask you yourself, who is Peckinpah to you? Certainly, when I was, uh, let's say, 13, 14, I had my first VCR and really started digging into film history. Uh, I grew up in Miami and uh, had friends who's parents had a lot of movies on videotape and when i saw the wild bunch the first time it it, it really resonated with me for, for a couple of reasons and one is it's just such an interesting use of the, the various techniques of filmmaking 
And it's obvious even to a 13, 14 year old with uh, no experience as, as a filmmaker uh, that someone is doing something different here. Things like, you know, the slow motion and the way a lot of the fights are intercut. So when I saw that movie, initially, I responded to the violence in it, uh, the male camaraderie of it all, and uh, the obvious uh, cinematographic innovations. And it's a movie I've returned to throughout my life. I would uh, pick it as one of my three favorite movies ever. And it's always meant different stuff to me at different points and different sequences have stood out to me at different times. I mean, certainly as a, as a, as a 13, 14 year old, uh, the violence is really standing out to me. And, uh, but as I got older, a lot of the dramatic elements and then just how loose it is in spots, that was a, a really early movie where I appreciated the filmmaker and saw the filmmaker's voice as to the fore. And that was something I, you know, I, I, I took on from, from that point. I mean, whether it was Hitchcock or De Palma or Dario Argento, where I could see their signature on it. But uh, the signature of Sam Peckinpah is very big and very red and very obvious. And as I hunted down other movies of his, it was just you know, something I saw as this singular voice of, of a filmmaker. My first script that really set up my career back when I was a catering chef about 15 years ago was a Western. Uh, it was hard for me to get Pike, uh, William Holden's face, out of my mind when I was writing the sheriff character for that first one. I've since been able to do it, and it's not a problem. But so etched into my memory are the images of that movie that it was, it was a pretty hard thing for me to escape. I can trace my fascination back uh, with the genre, back to that movie. And I enjoyed the Leone movies a lot, and I'm a big fan of Anthony Mann and Bud Bedeker. But certainly Wild Bunch is my favorite Western, and as I said, one of my uh, three favorite movies of all time. You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that idea of Pike and Pike's face. And, you know, I noticed in your work, you work with actors who are not the young, like I think we're used to seeing action films or at least the the big budget ones with the youngest most buff guys and I think you have this kind of uh, and I don't mean to I mean it's just they're older guys they're a little bit older and I think there's something sure. about you know action with older guys what is interesting about that to you because I, f- I found that to be really engaging watching the wild bunch like, I went to NYU and to get to the directing courses you need to take acting courses and never once for one second of one day of my life have I wanted to be an actor. But I think understanding the craft is important in terms of getting the right kinds of performances and knowing how to speak to actors. But something I remember sort of discovering uh, way back when, in you know, the early 90s, old people are more interesting than young people. And <laughs> an older person is going to have a more compelling history uh, and, and oftentimes a more interesting face in terms of seeing uh, the where and the life that had been lived. But I mean, if you look at, you know, Don Johnson or, or Kurt Russell or, or Mel Gibson or Vince Vaughn's face at this point in time and look at it at it 20, 30 years ago, a lot of life has been lived. It's something I find compelling. I mean, it's certainly a big idea in the movie Wild Bunch, you know, in itself in terms of are these people of this time or are they beyond it? Are they the scorpion on top of the mountain of ants that are, you know, that, that, that's swarming over and destroying them. And they're just sort of these remnants from this other period. And will they find their place in this new period or will they just be phased out and, uh, and, and uh, killed and eaten by the ants? Talking about that idea of 
making your films within the industry the way that it's set up now as it is. I mean, how do you feel like it is making kind of like sort of dangerous outlaw feeling cinema in this millennium as, compa- as compared to the struggles that Peckinpah himself had? I think Sam, Sam Peckinpah was, uh, from what I know, uh, it seemed like maybe not always sober and pretty rude and aggressive with his crew. I mean, there's, there's the story I've heard, which this is apocryphal. Like, I don't know if this is true, but seems emblematic of what anyone would ever say about him. Was he was in some room watching the dailies, and the dailies are out of focus. And he walks up and urinates on the screen and says, call me when you get some effing focus. So <laughs> I don't know if that story is true, that aspect of filmmaking. That's just not anything um, I believe in or, or accept. I, I don't even like the ADs to yell. And I think you're asking a lot of performers to put their personalities and emotions on the line. And you want to make that place as comfortable for everyone as possible rather than do a lot of yelling and bullying. So that that. In, in that way, again, this is based on assumptions, and I, and I could be wrong, but it seems most of the stories line up with him being uh, not the most polite person. So I don't know exactly how that translates to him working within the studio or without. No, and you're, you are right. I mean, he kept and wanted to keep away the studio for as long as he could. And famously on this on Wild Bunch, what happened was he screened a cut for the executives. They freaked out because it was so incredibly violent that they were like, this is unreleasable. What is it like to, to work in that, in that medium too? Because I think that you, your films definitely have these sequences of, ex, of extreme violence that I think, you know, people are like, whoa, you know, uh, and when you see people reacting to that for the first time, not the audience, but the people who back the films, like, do you have to deal with kind of, you know, uh, hand-holding them a little bit? Not really in the way that I've set things up. I mean, Bone Tomahawk was really made through Dallas Sonia, the producer, kind of just mortgaging his home and believing that I would make something really good. And then when we had the finished product, uh, RLJ came in and, and the deals that we offered were, it's this movie and we're not making changes. Do you want to release it? And that's been the case every time. I and mean, we've been courted by people who would have pushed the theatrical release of, of these pictures more, but came in with creative ideas. And that's sort of the end of the conversation. Like, we're setting out to make the thing that I wrote. If everyone wants to be in a giant collaborative community, that's terrific. But the people that I collaborate with are the actors on the set, the production designer on the set, and the cinematographer on the set. Um, not really a money people after the fact. And there are happy accidents and things that come up, but that, that script is the plan. And there's the saying of, you write one movie, you shoot another, and you edit a third. I write one movie, I then shoot that movie, and then I edit back to that movie. I edit that movie back to that initial screenplay because that's, that's the plan. And definitely a plan that is um, uh, you know, just a good way to proceed when you don't have enough time and the right resources to get everything done. Like You know what you're targeting. You're not... Uh, fishing around for it on the day. You know, in hearing that, and we were talking a little bit earlier about how those sequences that you saw, those action sequences when you were a kid, the editing of them really struck out to you. And that was something I think that was found in the editing room. And that's something that I think, you know, as written versus as... uh, as cut together were a little bit different. And I've seen that you work with um, Greg Dorier. Like, do you know, do you find that that relationship, does he help you, you know, I mean, obviously you're writing, you're directing, you have the vision, like you just said, like you write the movie and you see it, but is he 
influential in helping you kind of find different things or bringing different things in? Or what, what is that partnership that makes you return back to him? It's, uh, it's, it's a great partnership. I mean, uh, in terms of what he brings, he brings an emphasis on character. Right. And he doesn't bring what many editors uh, bring, which is, let's pace this up. People might be, you know, people might find this boring. You know, I don't know. It, 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 he comes from the place, uh, which is, I think, is a good place. It's like, where are we going to find the most interesting character moments and, and subtlety? I mean, in, in action sequence, is mechanical to some degree. You want stuff to look believable, and you want the moments that are violent to uh, have the proper effect, whether you're going for a, a violent moment that's to be traumatic, such as this, you know, the, the, uh, the stuff in Bone Tomahawk or cathartic, more like the climactic stuff in Brawl and Subblock 99. Uh, you know, there are, different, there are different kinds of violence, but there's always the sense of, do you understand where this guy is coming from? Do you understand where this woman is coming right. from? And really letting all those character moments breathe. And what happens if we uh, stretch it out and make it longer? And I think this is, maybe it's John Cage or maybe it's Terry Riley, but one of the minimalist um, avant-garde composers whose, whose philosophy was, if something's boring at four repetitions, play it eight times. If it's boring <laughs> at eight times, try 16. If, it's at, if 16 is still boring, try 32. And so we're playing around with those sorts of things uh, in, in these pictures. So it's, it's a very good relationship. And, and, mo- and most of our discussion is character stuff and performance. You, you said something really interesting once. You said that shooting graphic violence is like a magic trick. And I was curious how so. My initial uh, interest in, in movies, let's go back to Wild Bunch and I'm 13, 14, a lot of the appeal of the movie for me was the graphic violence, and, and I was a child of Fangoria, but I was very interested in just movie monsters and gore and all of that sort of stuff. So the solution for many folks nowadays is uh, CG. We'll fix it in post. We'll just have someone mime something, and then we'll just do it after the fact. Now, my opinion is... That stuff is rarely perfect, and, it's, and a lot of times it's almost right, but that almost is enough for it not to feel quite real. And so I, uh, I, I approach a lot of graphic violence wanting to do it on the set and deciding, well, this is, this is good enough. And some of the stuff isn't perfect. I can, I can shoot holes in some of the moments of gore in and, and, and all three of my movies, but I would rather you're poking holes and something that was done on the set that is a tangible thing that has the give and take and, um, uh, let's say, erratic quality that real life does as opposed to the kind of manicured, smooth CG thing. So, for instance, in Brawl and Subblock 99, there's a moment where um, uh, Bradley Thomas, this is a Vince Vaughn character, and Mustafa Shakir uh, are coming up Bradley has just had a visit from Udo Kier, and, he, and, and Bradley has decided he needs to hurt his guard, who's actually had his mea culpa and is a little bit more sympathetic at that moment. He has to hurt this guard to get, to get out of this prison and go where he needs to go to, 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 to do what he needs to do. So uh, uh, there are a lot of ways in which that, that guard could be hurt, and they, they fight for a while, but eventually Bradley breaks his arm. 
and breaks his arm in such a way that it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a compound break and that the bone actually comes through the skin. And that's the sort of thing where uh, you could put that bone in CG, you could have a lot of cuts that are there, but actually having a shot where you see the entirety of uh, Bradley, uh, the entirety of the, the security officer, and then the arm broken, and I don't go in close, but you see all of both of their bodies, and then the arm break, which I figured, I'm like, what we do is we hide his real arm and have Vince on the set actually break this fake arm. There's a, there's a different intensity to that because there's not the edit. Uh, there's no music, let it, you know, kind of uh, giving you that sort of out. In these cases, we are doing kind of like magic trick things. We're hiding the real arm. We're bringing in a fake arm. I think there's a, there are a few different reasons why the graphic violence seems different in the stuff that I'm doing, but probably the, the most significant one is this isn't really messed with after the fact. We're figuring out a way to do it on the set. You know, I am curious, and I know we should let you go, but people have talked about remaking The Wild Bunch, and one of those people is somebody that you know really well as a filmmaker and an actor, and that's Mel Gibson. And I want to ask, like, do you have any insight on what he would bring to this story if he brought it back? We were doing an, uh, a Q&A at Beyond Fest. I think that's at the Egyptian. It's a, it's a great, great, great festival out there. And I'd not spoken to him, uh, you know, uh, uh, about the project. Uh, but he said in that interview that he didn't say much. And, and I really don't know very, very much about, about that, that project. And I think this is, this is a sacred movie for me and, and a favorite. So he said he was going to do something that, wasn't a Western, which uh, made me more interested because another Western named Wild Bunch, that's, that's pretty tough. I mean, for me, right. this is one of my top favorite movies of all time. So when he told me that it was, and he told the, the crowd that it wasn't going to be a Western, I was more interested in so far as, uh, well, he's going to do something different with it. Uh, I would imagine you're going to have some of the uh, men who feel like not a part of this time going rogue uh but other than that it's just pure conjecture on my point uh, on my part and he said it wasn't going to be a uh a western which made me more interested one thing i'd like to say just about the wild bunch that i it's just at every point in my life when i've returned to it i've differently interpreted the sequence of the kids with the scorpion and the ants that sequence i've probably looked at and interpreted differently every time and to me that's an interesting thing with it with uh, with that movie and, and a lot of movies I like, which is having a different view on it each time. I mean, you could see it's like the inherent evil in children or this metaphor for, you know, the scorpion is the wild bunch and the, the ants are the people, you know, their adversaries. Or that the children are learning this wickedness from nature and it's going inside them, sort of, a, you know, nurture versus nature uh, uh, you know, kind, kind of idea getting out there. So to me, there's something really compelling with movies that let people draw their own conclusions. And just insofar as that first metaphor and that opening scene, I think every time I've watched it at different points in my life, I've come up with different meaning for it. And I think that that's, that's throughout that movie. And that's, that's a lot of the material I like is that stuff that, that's putting out compelling stuff and lets people draw their own conclusions. I love it. Well, Craig... Thank you again for coming on Unspooled. This has been such a fun conversation. Cool. Thanks very much for having me. 
just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The style of this, you know, has ripples in a way that you see so many other films in this film. You know, even, you know, John Wayne basically is like, I mean, of course, John Wayne doesn't like this movie. And this is the second time he's basically like, this movie destroyed everything that I loved. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we should definitely talk about that for a second yeah. because... In our High Noon episode, John Wayne was super offended by that. He's like, the West wasn't full of backstabbing, lazy villagers. The West was full of red-blooded, perfect Americans, and I'm so mad, and I'm going to make Rio Bravo to correct this image that you've put forth with High Noon. This movie makes him so mad that he makes a sequel to Rio Bravo, like, just as a response. He makes Rio Lobo. He's like, oh, you guys have fucked it up again. You guys have fucked it up again. But I think Hollywood was on John Wayne's side because, honestly— the year of the Oscars that The Wild Bunch was nominated for, the year that you have all these other postmodern westerns, modern-y westerns, broken westerns, things like Midnight Cowboy coming out, John Wayne is also nominated, again, for True Grit. And here, I think you can hear what side the Academy was on. The voice you're about to hear, by the way, is a stunning-looking Barbara Streisand. Inside is one of the following names, all of whom have been nominated for the best performance by an actor. Peter O'Toole in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy, John Voight in Midnight Cowboy, Richard Burton in Anne of the Thousand Days, and John Wayne in True Grit. I'm not going to tell you. The winner is... John Wayne in True Grit. I mean, that feels like a political win to me. That feels like the older members of the Academy looking around and saying, I don't know about this Butch Cassidy thing. I don't know about this Wild Bunch. I don't know about Midnight Cowboy. I don't know about Easy Rider. I don't know about Bounty and Clyde. I like the John Wayne version of America. Of everything we have on the AFI 100... Wild Bunch might be the most unusual film on that list because yes. we've gone over this. Most films won Best Picture or they were one of the best box office hits of that year. Wild Bunch is neither of those things. Wild Bunch is a termite that bore onto the list because it became so influential later. And I think that alone makes me like it and makes me want to protect it and think that it should stay on, even though, I don't know, even though you're right. Like, I love the ending violent scene in Bonnie and Clyde more than I like this one here. It's outsider status makes me want to defend it because we don't have anything outsider on this list. And also like Bonnie and Clyde, it's also a love story. Don't you think it's a love story between Thornton and Pike a little bit? Maybe a little bit. I feel like it's like— They respect each other more than anybody else's does. Although don't you think the intro does 
Thornton really dirty because it's like, da, 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 we're coming in. Yeah. We got all these cool freeze frames. William Holden, here's William Holden's freeze frame. Ernest Borgnine, here's Ernest Borgnine's free, for, freeze frame. Robert Ryan, that's a freeze frame of a horse's ass. Well, what I is mean, that about? but you couldn't, he wasn't on screen. You can't just like cut to him. I mean, he, like, okay, but a horse's ass literally they could have done <laughs> anything else. I think they couldn't have put it on anybody riding the horse because then they would be confused. Uh, it would have been hard. It's like any anything that would show a face, you'd be like, is that Robert Ryan? By the way, did you think, this is going back a little bit, that they were made up or they looked a little bit like a rugged John Wayne? I feel like, uh, especially Pike to me sometimes, like you look at him and he had like a little bit, like they looked a little bit like John Wayne and James Garner. And I know Maverick is much later, but they had like a little bit of... Um, I don't think that that was coincidence, that, he had, that they looked a little bit like John Wayne. I, mean, I feel like at a certain age, all old men start to look the same. Maybe you're right. Oh, my gosh. Am I going to look like that? Oh, I wanted to ask you a question about the scene on the bridge. Is you think that this is um, this is Peckinpah doing Bridge Over River Kwai? Like, I mean, that, that famous scene from Bridge Over River Kwai where they blow the bridge. Like this, they're blowing the bridge. It's much more down and dirty. It's a smaller bridge, obviously. But it's – I think it's – almost equally like jaw dropping because to see men on horses <laughs> dropping like that, you're like, whoa, wait, how did they, what? Yeah, I mean, this whole sequence building up to it, it felt like we were watching a Roadrunner cartoon. You know, the whole bit with the train going back and forth yeah. is like one part the general and one part like, oh, we've got all these Acme boxes that just happen to be labeled, you know, grenades. Like, do you think it's better or worse if you have a bunch of grenades to label them grenades or not? Like, would you want people to know that that's where the grenades are as a warning? Or maybe you should just label it cans of peas so that they leave the grenades alone? <laughs> or then what if you had, like, a thing that was labeled cans of peas and you found out it was grenades? Like, is that what Amy, this is the kind of mentality that will get you really into writing Wile E. Coyote cartoons. Well, it felt really Wile E. Coyote. They're going across the bridge. You know, you're leaving the United States. It felt very much like the roadrunner was going to get the last laugh on Thornton. There's a lot of cartoonness in this movie that I that I enjoyed. And I, maybe that is just because of this one recurring thing that kept making me laugh. But Ernest Borgnine's giggle. Mm -hmm. Can we listen to that? Oh, my gosh. It's the best giggle of all time. People marching and singing, coming down the street. They're going to pass by the horses. We'll join them. The temperance union? <laughs> I know that giggle. Do you know that giggle? I mean, I know that giggle because I know Ernest Borgnine. Okay, that giggle, it's a little bit muddy in this clip I'm about to show, but I think it is um, more apropos. Maybe prove me wrong. I think that giggle gets recycled in a movie I love very much. <laughs> I don't know, Amy. You're reaching. You think no, that I'm they. Not. No, I'm not. Keep you going. You think that Keep Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Now, aha, uh -huh. there is a lot of laughing yourself to death in this film. There's mm. so much I mean, inappropriate, strange laughter. I mean, the, <laughs> the the prospector guy, like the guy who just seems like he's absolutely being Walter Houston from The Treasure of, of the Sierra Madre. You know, he's introduced cackling. The film ends cackling. I love They're that They're just ending. screwing around and sometimes dying. They are laughing themselves to death. And that is the same giggle. But I feel like, don't you feel like there's something beautiful about that laugh? It's like... It's the only time I've watched a laughter in a movie that feels like it's giving us permission to breathe again. Like, you know, it's sort of like you, it diffuses the heightened nature of it. We just see this giant, we, the two biggest laughing scenes come after 
to the biggest massacres, the beginning and the end. And, and, you know, the end is kind of a retrospect of these characters, like, you know, you were going back. But it's like, that's how they kind of, I think it's like we tipped our hat. Like, they live life to the fullest. Like, don't feel bad for them. We talk about this happy ending thing. Don't feel bad for them. They they enjoyed their time while they were here. And they were bound to go out this way. They were not going to go out any other way. Isn't that how you feel about the weasels and Roger Rabbit? <laughs> I can't speak to that, Amy. Um, I, I will say one thing about Ernest Borgnine that was interesting, though. Uh, you know, obviously Pike has a limp, and he has a limp because we see in the flashback, you know, uh, he was injured. But Ernest Borgnine also has a limp, and his is actually genuine because he broke, broke his foot while filming the split, and he had to wear a cast throughout the whole Mexican sequence of this film. Poor Borgie. So, I know. So, I mean, and that's – he has some active movement, especially at the end. I mean, but it's uh, – you know, it's funny <laughs> – to have a main character have a limp and then his sidekick also have a, a limp. I like that. I like that. But I, I'm not letting my point go, though. Hold on. Right. I just want to say, I think all of the laughs in here become super influential. Okay. I really mean that. Like, there's another laugh in here that I feel like Brian De Palma took for Carrie. And that's when... Wait, he's, you're thinking that they're taking the laughs... Other people's laughs and inserting them in movies, like the Wilhelm okay. scream. Okay, not exactly Wilhelm screaming, but I think they're taking the idea of everything laughter can do. Okay. You know, I, I think this movie is very influential in violence, but I think it's also very influential in the power of laughter. And when Angel gets taken by Mapache and his men, there's that pivoting circle, they're all going to laugh at you thing, which is exactly what Brian De Palma doesn't carry. <laughs> Laughter is hot. You're giving me a suspicious look. I'm not. I just think it's like, I don't think, I mean, it's tricky, right? Because it's to show embarrassment. Like everybody, and and I don't think that these are like, oh, we've never seen that kind of embarrassment on screen. Like I feel like it It seems to me like a normal type of scene, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I, I don't mean, know. I just feel like this is a film that everybody who went on to make the films of the 70s saw. Right. And that so they you could steal that. And yeah. I feel like okay. there's so many things that immediately really rip it off. Even Scorsese loved this film. Even Paul Schrader loved this film. Paul Schrader said that what he learned from The Wild Bunch is that when he went on to write his films, he should lean into the things that make him uncomfortable, the things that he's wrestling with. And then you get Taxi Driver out of that. I agree. I, I feel like this film, it did kind of burrow into this entire generation like a termite. And so it's powerful without me loving it. All right, so I mean, so by this token, and and I want to go one more step further down the laughing hole. Um, would you say that this scene is ins also inspired by Wild Bunch? Excuse me. Dad, are you gonna that is Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. No, I think you took it too far. <laughs> um, I would have picked back, though, up on what you were saying about Borgnine, because I cut off your Borgnine because I wanted to get to my laughter point. Yes. I love Borgnine so much in this film. And I think, to me, if this film has a, an emotional message that it sums up in a line, Beyond the fact that machine guns are dehumanizing, that we've taken war and we've turned it into mechanized destruction. Oh, by the way, can I just say one thing about the amount of bullets yeah. that are shot here, just because we we're talking about machine guns? Um, there were more blank rounds discharged during production than live rounds that were fired during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, they oh used 90,000 blank rounds. 90,000. Just to put that in perspective. 
My God. You know, I tried to research a little bit more about the Mexican Revolution because it's something I keep learning about and then forgetting because it's so complicated. Yeah, it's a lot. And I feel like I should try to remember. I don't know if you know this about me, but um, I come from a very old Texas family. And during the Mexican Revolution, part of my family, my great-great-uncle was living in Mexico. He was a preacher. And they kicked out a lot of the religious people. And so my great-great-aunt Tia said that her first memory of being a little kid is being on one of those push carts, you know, those train carts that yeah. like push, 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 push. Being on one of those with her dad as they were getting kicked out of Mexico during the revolution. And she saw bodies strung up on the poles, hanged bodies wow. all the way they, as they went their way back to Texas. And I feel like because of that, I have an obligation to understand the Mexican Revolution better. But it just seems like this person came in charge, and see people who worked underneath them were trying to kill. It's a lot people. of there's a, a lot of factions. There's a lot of factions yeah. going on, and I think this movie does a great job of showing just through the perspective of one village the all the dynamics that are going on. It's not. It's not. I mean, at least from my vantage point, not incredibly clear cut. It's it's a lot of small pieces. I guess it's as blurred as even just. Pike Bishop and Thornton. You know, yeah. when you put those two men and their posses together, the people who are the outlaws, the bishop's crew, they seem more orderly than Thornton's crew, who's a they are technically on the side of the law, but they're a bunch of grave robbers. They're ghouls. Yeah. They're they're no better than the vultures. I totally agree with you. So I like that mixing up. I think the mixing up really works well. But then I like that in the middle of that, you have this moment of clarity from Ernest Borgnine trying to set some sort of moral code. They got Freddy. Looks like he's hit pretty bad. Damn that deep sort in the hell. What would you do in his place? He gave his word. Gave his word to a railroad. It's his word! That ain't what counts! It's who you give it to! I love that line. That it's not about giving your word. It's who you choose to give your word to. I think that's just a really powerful thing because I I think a lot of films boil down to like, well, he swore he made a promise and Bergnine cuts through what I think is a lot of bullshit. And he's like, don't give your word to people who don't deserve it. You know, give your word to the right people. And in that moment, I think Bergnine really proves that he is this center of moral clarity in a film that gets really scrambled. I mean, the only way, I mean, I guess there's a part of it again that is a, a very interpersonal movie and that's what I think I wrestle with. It's not just... It's dealing with more complex subjects, but it's hidden underneath the the visuals that are so, you know, violent and bloody. And I think it comes across as one movie, but there's a deeper meaning to every kind of character moment and relationship. And that's why I feel like there's a lot of internal things going on. Even the flashbacks are minimal. You're going into a flashback for probably all told, all the flashbacks, two and a half minutes. I mean, it's not... You know, we're not like really devolving. We're not, we're we're living in the moment with these characters. And yeah, uh, and that's even in the director's cut. Warner yeah. Brothers cut out more of the flashbacks. They cut out the one where he talks about the woman he loved, where Holden yeah. says, I loved oh, a I woman love and she got shot. Warner Brothers cut that out and Peck and Paul finally had to put it back in. That's interesting. You know, there's so many cuts of this movie. You know, I think one to avoid an X rating. And, you know, uh, the one that exists now, I tried to find a different version than the director's cut. And you really can't find another version of it, or at least my research. It wasn't like there's one and here's the other one. There's remastered versions, but it's all the director's cut now. So it's good to know that eventually they let it live the way it was supposed to live. And and it's not like uh, some of the other films we've talked about. Like he got to do it the way that he intended, not not updating it because he wanted to, but going back to the way that he envisioned it in the first place. 
It's true, and I think that is why this director's cut version, especially, even though there are moments that are definitely deliberately chaotic, you mm-hmm. know, the way they edit those battle scenes together for one or the, for the major thing. I think you do feel Pe- Peckinpah's steadying hand in that he allows you to feel all the different ways about the bunch themselves, and he doesn't try to romanticize them. He doesn't make them these martyrs when they die, even nope. even in the chaotic battle scene at the end. Even Pike. Pike has a very unceremoniously... Yeah, shot by yeah, a kid. That's it. Movie moves on. And he lets you see these people in a well-rounded way. I mean, I think to me, one of the more powerful scenes in the entire film is right before that climactic battle where they're at another brothel because mm-hmm. there are nothing in here but women who are either being mm-hmm. sold into sex, giving themselves up to have better lives, um, or mourning. Those are like your three options if you're a woman back here. But you have Holden with his woman leaving, and then the other two men in his group, um, Edmund O'Brien and Warren Oates, he watches them be cruel to a prostitute, and you just see that he has no respect for these men. And yeah. that he won't feel that sad when they die, even though they are also part of a team. His disgust for them in that moment, I find really powerful. Yeah. I also find really powerful the weight that he gives this scene where Angel kills his ex-girlfriend, Teresa. Because that actress, the woman who plays Teresa, who has one minute maybe tops in this entire film, she makes such an impression. And the woman that he cast, you know, he didn't just cast Beautiful Girl. He cast this woman whose name was Sonia Emilio, and she was a woman who was already famous in Mexico. She was a piano prodigy. She was a ballerina. She went on to become a composer, a conductor, a musical teacher, and then she was an actress. You know, she was this woman of multi-talents. You know, she taught castanets. You know, she was this well-rounded artist with a lot of respect in Mexico. And so he cast her, even though she has no fame here in America. And in this scene, I think we should play it, even though it's in Spanish— you get this woman and you get her point of view. You watch emotions flicker on her face. You, She's angry that Angel shows back up. She feels a little bit bad. She doesn't feel all the way guilty. You hear her say the thing that is the great motivator of Chaplin. She's with this general because she was hungry. And it's just this beautiful performance. And I think he allows her to, to have so much weight that when Angel shoots her, you don't just feel like, yeah, they killed a woman. Even though all the other men in the scene are like, ah, you killed a woman. Would you like a beer? You're... I, he understands that this role needs to be strong. So I just want to listen to it. Dejaste el pueblo. Sí. ¿Y qué? Sí. Dejé tu pinchurriento pueblo. No más por no morirme de hambre. Pero mira, ahora soy feliz. Muy feliz. Vivo con el mero mero de aquí. I just love how much he loves Teresa because I can see another filmmaker having that scene as like cheating woman got what she deserved. Mm-hmm. And that's not here. I'm glad it's not. No, I think this movie is very surprisingly, and we say this all the time, surprisingly uh, smart and making these choices that are not lazy and incredibly thought out and complicated. And there's something about it that when I look at it, if I'm just comparing Bonnie and Clyde in this, and obviously Bonnie and Clyde have a, a very strong like sense of Americana to it. They are these larger than life personalities. There's, I think, a real deafness to the filmmaking here that, that like it's kind of hidden, but it's all there. That, like on the outside, you just see like, 
this is kind of this big movie. You know, is it different than Guns of Navarone or or Magnificent Seven? Like, you know, I think it all gets lumped together, but this movie is doing something more complex, even the way it was shot. I mean, using, you know, these telephoto lenses that allowed objects and people, you know, in the background and foreground to be compressed. You know, it's like he's doing these things, but the film looks dirty, but yet he's doing these amazing things with the camera. You know, uh, the soundtrack is also amazing. The soundtrack doesn't sound like a soundtrack to an action movie. It does sound more like a, a soundtrack to a love story. You know, if you take it out, it there's just something about this movie yeah, that I can't escape. Yeah, and sometimes escape. he takes it out and it's just the sound of the train tracks. Yes. Like, he knows when to hold it back. He knows when to let it flow. Yeah. I think we know there's bad reviews of this movie. We know there's a lot of uh, people that are against this movie. This was a movie that goes on to redefine how we rate movies, you know, uh, and the violence that we see in it. Um, but is there any particular bad review, or do you think we've covered that? There's a couple. First, I'll start with Rex Reed. So here's what Rex Reed said about The Wild the Bunch. shoplifter, Rex Reed? <laughs> he's a shoplifter? Wasn't he, like, arrested for shoplifting at one point? <laughs> well, let me see. he's a jerk, so we can just say that. That's right. fine. No, now I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's for probation for 2000. Arrested for shoplifting. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Do they sell free Rex Reed shirts like they have free? Uh, <laughs> he stole, he stole Meltor May records from Tower Records. <laughs> he stole Meltor May records from Tower uh, Records? Yep. Well, the reaction of this guy to the Wild Bunch sounds like a guy who would steal Meltor May records from Tower <laughs> Records in the year 2000? 2000. In the year 2000. Okay. Anyway, so this is what Rex Reed said about the Wild Bunch. He called it a phony, pretentious piece of throat-slashing slobber, which goes around announcing good, anti-violent attentions while exploiting and glorifying violence to the happy jingle of box office coins. Peckinpah's philosophy of life appears to be that the world is totally corrupt, that there is no decency and morality left in society, and therefore, the best thing to do is to blow everyone's head off and have a great time doing it. And then he called Peckinpah a man to be pitied, not admired. Wow. And to add another capper, Judith Christ of New York Magazine called it Quote, undoubtedly the worst movie of 1969. If you want to see The Wild Bunch, be sure and take along a barf bag. Wow. But again, we're talking about these reactions to movies that are redefining what cinema is showing. Like, if you thought that Bonnie and Clyde was a lot, get ready, because here it is even more. And I think... And you, it shows you the weakness of the MPA because they had a lot of cuts, and basically Warner Brothers ignored them. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, how many people do you think were killed in this movie? Oh, I have no idea. Want to just take a guess? Uh, 150? 145. All right. Yeah. Winner, winner, chicken yeah, dinner. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, 22 <laughs> in the opening shootout and 112 in the in the final battle. Jesus. I mean, including women in the first scenes, you know, which yeah. I think was another thing that comes out of Vietnam. I mean, when this movie is being made, oh, it feels like seeing a, women and children get murdered in Vietnam. It does feel like a comment on what's going on like that, which is another whole other level. Yeah, the whole production cycle of this movie is bracketed by the deaths of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. So I guess, you know, for all these reasons that we're talking about, Amy, I I feel like at this point, I can't kick this movie off the list. It's it's essentially hovering its number 79 on the list. Um, we've talked about a lot of war movies, talked about a lot of Western movies, but this is a movie that has opened us up to a tremendous conversation about what it does, what it's trying to do. I think it accomplishes um, – and I think it is important. I think this conversation has helped me wrestle with that a little bit more. I, at this point, I am fine with keeping this on the list. I mean, definitely over the searchers. And we were talking about like a different movie. Uh, I, I, you know, I definitely feel like this is something I really, really like. Uh, I'm more on the fence because 
I think this film is incredibly important, incredibly influential. And yet, I feel like I want to reward the films that it inspired that took this idea and I ran agree, with it a little I more agree. But than then, the but, actual Patient Zero. I know, and that's what I was wrestling with too. It's like, well, what's more important, the chicken or the egg? And and I don't know, I don't know, but it's like, you know, how do you... I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm I'm equally on the fence. The fact that it's number 80, I feel like it's a conversation that I'd like to revisit. And I think the only way that I've come to wrestle with these movies is what sticks with me as we go further and further away. And and the, and and where I've switched my opinion is High Noon is a movie that when I watch it, it's like, eh, High Noon, fine. It was fine. And I'm like, oh, I think that I really appreciate that. And I then I look at these two together and I go, well, what's the more important film? And I'm like, well, High Noon is interesting because it's deliv- the delivery system of High Noon is giving you what you expect, but in a different way. This is saying, fuck what you expect. We're going to show you the real. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, and yet of of that one plus Bonnie and Clyde, I still really love Bonnie and Clyde. And maybe, yeah. I don't think it's that unfair of, an, of a comparison because Bonnie and Clyde is not set that much longer. Bonnie no. and Clyde's only set 20 years after this. And so it still feels like part of that dying of one way of the West. Although now everybody has the car. The car isn't just the brand yes. new shiny thing. And you're like, I hear airplanes Well, they're exist. still cowboys. I mean, what? they are cowboys. Yeah. They're running around like outlaws. And then that goes into natural born killers. And that goes in, you know, there's there's such a, and that goes into Queen and Slim. I mean, you know, they- Which I love. Yeah. I hope people saw that. I, I feel like even Peckinpah himself is torn on the legacy of this film. I'm not sure Peckinpah would say it should go on the list. Mm. I mean, here's how Peckinpah felt about this idea of what he wanted his violence to accomplish in the film and then what he felt like happened. Surely the, the effect your film can have on, on the cinema audiences can be dangerous, surely, because there was, wasn't there not a case in the Nigerian Civil War when some of the soldiers watched The Wild Bunch and were so excited by it, they started shooting and going out and saying they wanted to die like William Holden, in fact, creating mayhem. Does that worry you that that Yes, it happened? does very much, and uh, I have to preface this with the fact that this was a French correspondent Speaking honestly on what he'd seen, I made The Wild Bunch because I still believed in the Greek theory of catharsis that by seeing this we would be purged by pity and fear and get this out of our system. I was wrong. If you've noticed, most of my films are now an increasing level of violence. Bit by bit, and you must take it away because it does no good. I was wrong. They did that. They were they really attacking. Did, soldiers. Yes, they really did, and they were attacking for me for all the wrong reasons. And I stand corrected, and I am sick in my heart because of that. If one instance like that happened, uh, it makes it destroys what I was trying to do. Catharsis only works in certain, as Theodore Lips once said, it depends upon the viewer and his situation and the artist and uh, it was a total failure i will not make again wow right i mean because that yeah here we are talking about what it all takes to make a movie and put it together and then the one last thing the director can't control despite the financing despite the shooting schedules despite who gets to say yes despite who gets an ankle broken on the movie you can't control how the audience reacts and then what life your film has after i mean we talk about that we talked about that with spike lee and the fact of do the right thing and you know what does it inspire what doesn't it inspire I, I wish know. we got his point. Yeah. I wish I could get his point. I mm-hmm. wish I could see this movie through the eyes of somebody raw in 1969 and get his point, and we could have all absorbed it then. I know. It's tricky. Um, 
And with that, I will ask the question that really deserves to be answered. Is there Simpsons? No, but. Oh. But. This is an interesting loophole. We're we're taking the loophole on this on this installment of Is There Simpsons? So there's a person we have never mentioned in the course of Is There Simpsons, and that is a guy named Jim Reardon. Mm-hmm. He directed over 30 episodes of The Simpsons. He worked on the cartoon for 14 years. He's one of the major voices in shaping it from the beginning. And Jim Reardon uh, was brought on into The Simpsons universe in part because he was a Cal art, art student who got a lot of attention with a short film he made based on Peckinpah, called Bring Me the Head of Charlie Brown. Oh, wow. When the Great Pumpkin put the bounty on Charlie Brown's head, the rest of the gang race against each other to bump him off and collect the reward. Are, are you ready, Lucy? Just a minute. She likes okay, a fuse. blockhead. Heavily disguised, Charlie Brown is forced to take it on the lamb. There he is! Get him! Good grief. Until they pushed him too far. Taste it, Charlie Brown! See you in hell. I mean, this is insane. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. But I was also going to say, like, watching that, there's an element of Taxi Driver there. But I would also say that that's more like the other Peckinpah movie, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. It is, but a lot of that actual shootout was was mimicking and used the sounds of, used the actual machine oh, wow. gun sounds of the Wild Bunch. So in essence, the question, too, is there Simpsons, is now, would there have been a Simpsons if oh, not for I buy that. Sam Peckinpah? So, Amy, next week we're talking about another Billy Wilder film, another one on the list. This is our fourth one or third one that we've fourth. done. Fourth. Um, and, you know, The Apartment is about uh, a, a nice guy or I would say uh, a guy who gets caught up in a scheme, a scheme in which he is giving his apartment key to his boss so his boss can have an extramarital affair there. And actually not just his boss, but many of his uh, bosses. These are not even his friends, but they're all using his place as, uh, you know, uh, a fuck pad, essentially. I knew you were going to say fuck pad. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to find another word for it, but I can't. There isn't is a better one. No, there isn't. Um, so I want to know, what is something that you did uh, to get ahead? You know, obviously Jack Lemmon uses to get ahead. Was there ever a favor that you did? Was there ever a, uh, you know, uh, a thing that you gave somebody to uh, to get a little bit of recognition? So I want you to call us and tell us what you did. You don't have to tell us what you got from it. If you did, that'd be great, though, too. Uh, 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. You're going to call and tell us what kind of favor you did to get yourself ahead in business or in other ways. All right, Amy, we'll see you next week for The Apartment, which is available everywhere. Movies are streamed. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, 
Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.